Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are finishing Genesis 42 through 50. Now this is the story of Joseph reconciling with his brethren and then bringing them down into Egypt. It starts off in chapter 42, where Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because they're starving and there's corn in Egypt because of Joseph's foresight and the dreams that he interpreted of Pharaoh. So 42 is the story of them coming in. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He kind of is a little bit harsh with them, sends them back for Benjamin. And so they head back to grab Benjamin and bring Benjamin down. The 43rd chapter is where Judah essentially steps up. There's this tension that Joseph is establishing. They don't know that it's him. And so he says, how do I know you guys are telling the truth? And so he says, you know, bring your younger brother and let me hold him as like collateral to see if you guys are legit. And Judah steps up and says, you know what? I'm going to offer myself up as surety. And so in this chapter, Joseph's eating and drinking with his brothers. They still don't know who he is, though. So there's kind of that unknown factor going on in the 43rd chapter as to when they will find out who he is. And then in 44, Benjamin has come down, and they're eating, and Joseph is favoring Benjamin. And then he sends them back, but puts his cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends his troops in afterwards and say, why are you so unkind as to reward you know, Joseph this way? What are you talking about? You stole his cup. Oh, no, we didn't. Yeah, you did. Well, whoever has the cup, you can take him. And they search the sacks and they find the cup in Benjamin's sack which means by their own words, Benjamin is now going to become a servant to Joseph. Well, they promised their father they would bring Benjamin back safely, and now Benjamin is going to go back to prison in Egypt and be the servant of Joseph. So they kind of freak out. So much tension. And so it's at this point that in the 45th chapter, in the very first verse, we read that Joseph could not refrain himself. Joseph tells his brothers who he is. And he weeps, and he falls upon Benjamin's neck, and they embrace. And at the end of the 45th chapter, Joseph sends his brothers back to the land of his nativity to get their father. And we end with this beautiful story where Jacob is told, Joseph is yet alive. So in chapter 46, Joseph has sent wagons, and they gather up their possessions, and Jacob is going to leave the land of his fathers and go live in Egypt, where Joseph has come to power. And then the rest of 46 spells out all of the descendants of Jacob, everyone that's going into Egypt with him. And then we get to the 47th chapter. This is Jacob living in Egypt in a place called the land of Goshen. And in this chapter, we get into Joseph's agricultural policies. There's a lot of verses on how this played out. There's an interesting verse in chapter 47 about a total economic collapse. And then at the end of chapter 47, Jacob is preparing for his death. And then in chapter 48, as he prepares for his death, he pulls in Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, and they become adopted into the house of Israel. They are given kind of tribe position. So Joseph is replaced by his two sons, and now we have the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, and they'll be adopted in. 
and the 49th chapter. My goodness, there's a lot going on here. There sure is. <laughs> this is a big chunk of scripture. The 49th chapter, I believe, could be its own lesson. This is what a lot of people call the Testament of Jacob. These are his last words to his sons, and it's a patriarchal blessing. Notice he even says in the first verse that he's going to foretell what will happen in the last days. So this is a foreshadowing. Yeah. So the translation, in my opinion, isn't perfect. And so I really want to emphasize that there's much uncertainty in this text as far as meaning. There's a lot of elusiveness and a lot of wordplay happening in here. And many scholars call chapter 49 the most difficult segment of the entire book of Genesis. The Greek rendering of this chapter also bears some really distinct differences. And so just know that in here are some really interesting and valuable lessons that are patriarchal blessings. The two that get probably the most detail are going to be Judah and Joseph. And I believe that that has implications to the politics of Israel in the 10th century. You see, when we get to the 10th century, there's this division between the tribes, between the north and south. And the north is going to be led by Joseph's descendants, and the south is going to be led by Judah's descendants. And I think that's why we have more detail with those two tribes. But I know a lot of people ask questions about this chapter because in our patriarchal blessings, we have tribal designations, meaning we're told which tribe we're from. And so I think chapter 49 is a very interesting chapter on a lot of levels. So we'll delve into some of those things. And then in chapter 50, Jacob dies and he does not want to be buried in Egypt. He makes them promise that they will bury him in Canaan. So Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh and he takes a large body of people up to Canaan and buries Jacob. So Israel is now buried with his fathers. And then they come back to Egypt and Joseph now is preparing for his death. And Joseph gathers and prophesies. And this is where we get one of the most incredible prophecies of Joseph of Egypt regarding Joseph Smith. Because Joseph of Egypt was shown the latter days. And the Lord told him that a seer would come from his loins. A great seer in the latter days. And Joseph even names him. He says his name will be Joseph. In fact, it'll be the name of his father. So it'll be Joseph Jr. Now that prophecy, though it's been taken out of the King James Version, we're going to read from the JST of Genesis 50. And it was clearly there because it was on the brass plates that Lehi took to America because Lehi's going to quote that very prophecy to his son, Joseph. Lehi in the Book of Mormon is going to tell his son, Joseph, about Joseph of Egypt, who prophesied of Joseph Smith in the future. So a lot of Josephs. You know, Bryce, if I was teaching a gospel doctrine lesson, I would definitely want to read the JST of Genesis 50. Uh, if you look in footnote 24a, in Genesis 50, it says to go to the appendix. And I think that would be a don't miss section. And then open up your Book of Mormon and read Second Ephi chapter 3, where Lehi basically quotes that same chapter to his son, Joseph. Yeah. And so it's, it's clearly portraying this as a big deal, that everyone from Joseph's day on knew about a great seer in the latter days. I think this puts the Latter-day Saints into a different position when it comes to Joseph. I know in scholarship, they don't really put Joseph with the patriarchs because he's not a visionary, but 
If we read the Book of Mormon, if we read the JST, Joseph sits in that same position as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as great seers, men who had priesthood power, they were righteous, and they were connected to the powers of heaven. So I really think that, to me, is really important that you would not want to miss. Now, in this section, Bryce, I mean, there's a lot of chapters here. If you were teaching a class or if you were talking with your family, what are some things that you think you would want to emphasize? I think one of the greatest golden nuggets is Joseph's recognition that God was behind the painful trials he went through. When Joseph finally comes forward and embraces his brethren, he says in chapter 45, verse 4, come near unto me. And then he reveals, I am Joseph, your brother whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, this incredible insight, looking back on his life, he was sold into Egypt. He became a slave in Potiphar's house. He was betrayed by Potiphar's wife and went to prison. For a number of years, he was in prison. And then finally, he's pulled out of prison and he rises to power in Egypt. But those painful years of slavery and prison must have lingered on him. But somewhere along the line, Joseph made the recognition that had I not gone through that prison period, had I not suffered slavery into Egypt, I would not be in a position to save not just my family, but the whole world. So when he finally reveals himself to his brethren, he says in verse 5, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. We're in chapter 45. This is an important verse. Yeah. And then he repeats it. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by the great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And I think every single one of us need to take that and realize that the trials we suffer in life have divine purposes behind them, that the Lord is trying to accomplish some wonderful, great thing, that all these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. If we could recognize that at the time of the trial. Now, most of us, like Joseph, recognize it at the time of the blessing. When the blessing comes, we can look back and see that the trial was a blessing. But what if we began to trust God in the days of the trial and trust that someday this trial will turn to a blessing? Imagine how much faith and hope you could go through the trial with if you held on to that trust and that some great good is going to come out of this. I think that's one of the great messages I would teach this week, and I would embellish it a little bit with other scriptures. For example, let me just give you a couple other places you could go to point that out. In the New Testament, in Paul's life, we read in Acts 16, verse 7, he wanted to go to Bithynia, but notice in verse 7, the Spirit suffered them not. In verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there was a man from Macedonia and prayed, come over here, come to Macedonia, help us. And so Paul ends up in verse 12 in Philippi. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. 
Instead, the Lord pulled him into Philippi. Now, if you study the letters of Paul and of all the groups that he visited, wasn't there a special bond between Paul and the Philippians? Do you remember how they were weeping on the beach when he left? Go back and read the epistles of Paul, and you will just see this very, very tender love between Paul and the Philippians. But Paul didn't want to go there. But the Lord knew what was best. Joseph wanted to be raised in Canaan with his family and his brethren. He had no desires to spend a lot of his youth and teenage years, perhaps, in prison, in Potiphar's house. But the Lord had a plan, and the Lord was going to save the world through Joseph, and he had to get him into Egypt. And so there's a great example of all of the times in our life where you have all these wonderful plans, right? This is how my life's going to go. I'm going to go to Bithynia. And instead, the Lord stands up and says, no, come down to Philippi. I like that verse, Philippians 4.1. He says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for my joy and my crown, Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He doesn't speak to them the way he speaks to some of the others that he's chastising. That's so true. There's a connection there. And the Lord pulled him down to Philippi because the Lord knew that Paul was going to love these people. And so sometimes the Lord says to us, I'm going to send you to Egypt. I'm going to send you through slavery and into bondage, and you're going to spend some time in prison. But man, this is going to end well. Let me give you another twist on that that you may want to think about or talk to your family about or maybe bring up in class. In Matthew chapter 20, the Savior tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And he gathers people at the very beginning of the morning and says, you go work for me, I'll pay you a penny, which was fair. And then he gathers people throughout the day, even in the last hour of the day. He goes out at 5 p.m. and says, you work until 6. So some people only work one hour. And then at the end of the day, he pays them. And he starts with the people who worked only an hour. And they got paid a full day's wage, even though they worked an hour. He was overtly kind to them. God was granting a mercy moment to the people that worked an hour. Now, he was fair to the people who worked all day. And sometimes we sit back and say, wait a minute, my brethren got to stay here in Canaan with dad, and I went to prison? How come I was treated that way? How come God is being fair to me and merciful to someone else? It's sometimes that comparison that creates the frustration in our heart. Clearly, he's being overtly merciful to this group of people, and he's only being fair to me. The reason for that is because your mercy moment is coming someday. Of that, I just testify, it might be someone else's mercy moment today. Maybe today is your Egypt day. Maybe today is your Potiphar's house day. Maybe these are the days in which God is being fair to you. And you struggle with that because as you look around, you see God being overly merciful to someone else. And how come I can't have a mercy moment like you're having a mercy moment? Well, the answer for that is your mercy moment is coming someday, Joseph. Hang on in Potiphar's house. Today's not your mercy moment. Hang on in that prison. 
someday you will see how good God has been to you. Let me give you a beautiful illustration. Dieter Uchtdorf is so near and dear to all of our hearts, isn't he? And when I say Dieter Uchtdorf, you all know that I'm talking about a pilot who loves to fly. But do you remember that story he told about the bike his dad bought him? Elder Uchtdorf tells a story about when they first immigrated to West Germany, and the only job that his very dignified father could find was in laundry. He owned a laundromat, and they needed an errand boy. And so he asked Dieter to be his errand boy. Now, Dieter wanted the shiny red sleek bike like his friends had. And he did not get a shiny sleek red bike. And I'm sure in that moment, little Dieter at that moment could have looked around and seen that his friends had the cool bikes and that God was being kind and merciful to his friend. And he could have said, why me? Dieter got this black iron horse of a bike. Wouldn't be destroyed if it fell off a cliff kind of bike. It was heavy. It was hard to pedal. And that was Dieter's bike. And he hated the iron bike that he had. And as he rode that bike up and down the hills of Germany, it must have been exhausting for him. And he probably in that moment was saying, why God? This isn't fair. All my other friends have easier lives than I do right now. And he envied the red, cool bikes that they had. Now, fast forward years later, young Dieter is now young man Dieter, and he wants to be a pilot. He wants to join the Air Force. So he goes in for a medical examination that was required in order to be a pilot. And the doctor comes into him and says, you have scar tissue on your lungs. We're curious. How did you cure your lung disease? How did you heal that? We don't have a cure for that. And young Dieter says, what? I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't get special treatment that cured the disease you had? And then all of a sudden, he remembered it was the bike. Riding that iron horse of a bike in the fresh air of the outdoors had healed his lung disease, a disease he didn't even know he had. Now, I want you to think about it. If God had granted young Dieter the red bike, what would it have cost him? An airplane. But luckily, a loving God said, I know what you really want. Paul, it's not to go to Bithynia. What you really want, Dieter, is an airplane, and I'm going to grant that blessing to you. So bear with the bike you have today and understand that your mercy moment is coming. And had he not had that iron horse of a heavy bike in his youth, he may never have been a pilot in his adult years. See God in the trial. Recognize that he is being kind to you, but that your mercy moment is coming someday. So in that dark Egyptian prison, in those dark days when you are sold into slavery and you're wondering why, if God calls you to Philippi when you wanted to go to Bithynia, you remember what Joseph is going to say to his brothers years later. 
It was not you that sent me, but God. Now, later on, after Jacob dies, they're going to be afraid that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph's going to exact his revenge. And so they're worried about him. So when they come back from the burial of Jacob, they come to Joseph begging for forgiveness. And again, Joseph's going to say that same thing in chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Maybe if we could hold on to that in the darkness of the prison of our life. When people think evil against us, when life seems to be dark, may we remember that God means it unto our good. He says to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, if you should be cast into the pit and all these horrible things happen to you, Remember, my son, that all these things shall be for thy good. They shall give you experience. And that's what God's going to do in all of our lives. I like that. It's a really good rendering of the overall picture that God is still working even in the midst of these horrible things. This idea that God can take ashes and turn it into something beautiful and that Joseph recognizes that. I think that's a beautiful thing. Now, I think that some of the things in this text also indicate the power that God has in moving Joseph into a position where he can bless others. And Joseph's recognizing these things. I think that's important. And I also think there's a lot of things unspoken here, meaning that Joseph as a seer is having hope in these promises because later we'll read that he sees an even bigger picture than his life. Joseph sees the story of the earth. And what if Joseph's story is an archetype for the world story? And what if his story is a type for the Savior? Just as the Savior was betrayed and put in dark places, so he came out on the other side. Just as Joseph redeems the seeds and the crops, so Jesus has redeemed his seed. If we read Mosiah 15, when his soul is made an offering for sin, he shall surely see his seed. And so Jesus is the embodiment of these same kinds of ideas. Yeah. Now, There's a secondary one. If I were to do a second point, I would love to take my children to the symbolism of Judah offering himself as surety for Benjamin. This is very symbolic. Judah, who becomes the ancestor of Christ, Judah that represents the tribe of Judah from which Jesus is born, offers himself as a surety for Benjamin. In other words, Jacob is is hesitant. So Joseph wants Benjamin to come down. So he keeps Simeon and says, Simeon's going to stay in prison until you prove to me that you're not spies by verifying that you're telling the truth and bringing me Benjamin. Joseph just wanted to see Benjamin. And no way Jacob is going to send Benjamin. There's no way. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not losing Benjamin. And Judah offers himself as what he calls surety. He says in verse 8 of chapter 43, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. I will be surety for him. Of my hand thou shalt require him. In other words, Judah offers himself instead of Benjamin. And then when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack and Joseph does that on purpose, 
Benjamin is going to go to prison. Benjamin is going to be a servant for the rest of his life. He's never going to go back and see his father. Judah pleads for Benjamin's life, and Judah offers himself. So starting in verse 18 of 44, he pleads with Joseph and the servant of Joseph's house and says in verse 30, Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. It shall come to pass that when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father. Now verse 33, this is Judah pleading for Benjamin and Jacob like Jesus, his descendant, is pleading to the Father for us. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondsman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. It'll kill my father if Benjamin doesn't go back, so take me instead. I will give my life as a ransom for Benjamin. Now, that is a foreshadowing, and it's very appropriate that Judah makes that offer. It's kind of a repentance for selling him into slavery. It was Judah's idea to sell the lad, to not kill the lad, but to profit by it. And now Judah is pleading for the life of Benjamin as a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do when he says to the great monster, Jacob calls death and sin the great monster, and Jesus will offer himself to the great monster to free us from its clutches. And so that's just a beautiful moment where Judah offers himself to save Benjamin and really to save Jacob by giving his own life in exchange. It really is good. So we have the same thing going on with Reuben. If you go to the 42nd chapter, Reuben says, hey, you know what? If something bad happens, I'll take the blame. So if you look in chapter 42, verses 37 and 38, it's kind of the same thing. And this account is from the north because Reuben was a northern tribe. And so Reuben kind of offers up himself as surety, but not really like Judah. I mean, if you look in verse 37 of chapter 42, Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. So this is Reuben telling his dad, Hey, if you let me take Benjamin, verse 36, I promise you I'll come back. I'll come back with him. And if not, you can kill my two kids. Now, I have to chuckle because I'm, I'm thinking if I'm sitting in the room and these negotiations are taking place, I would say, Dad, what are you talking about? Well, if I'm Reuben's <laughs> kids, I'm saying that's not a good deal. That's, that's really, that's not a good deal. Yeah. And I don't take this literally that he's literally saying, slay my two sons. I think what he's saying is this is oath speech where he's basically saying, listen, I'm going to secure them. So whether it's Judah or whether it's Reuben, we get into this idea of the sources and that they're blended together. This is happening in this text. And I think, Bryce, one of the things we can pull from this is they still feel bad. And I think this is an important thing to realize. It's this whole idea of wickedness never was happiness. If you're going to make these really bad decisions and you think, oh, you know, I can forget or it won't affect me, I think Genesis is trying to illustrate that when you make these kinds of choices— 
they have echoes even later on in our lives. And so in another way, this is a great message of healing for these brothers that made this dumb mistake. Yeah, when they come down to Egypt and Joseph is kind of harsh with them and accuses them of being spies, and in chapter 42, verse 21, he says, "We they say, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? It's karma. They're saying we deserve this because we were unsympathetic when Joseph was pleading for us. Well, that's why Pharaoh's being unsympathetic while we're pleading for our lives. We deserve this. Yeah, and even at the end of verse 22, it says, his blood is required. This is the guilt that they're having. They're having this conversation, and they're having it right in front of Joseph, not even knowing that Joseph's understanding them. I mean, if you look at verse 23, it says, they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them through an interpreter. So they're having this conversation, and Joseph's standing right there, and in his mind, he's thinking, I know exactly what you guys are talking about. And I think Joseph probably is getting a little bit of satisfaction seeing that his brothers are still feeling this weight. And I really do see the message of the cup and where they send it back, and then they go and they catch the money is in Benjamin's cup, and then they pull him back. I see all of this as Joseph testing their character. Are these the same people that threw me in that pit? Or have, or have they changed? Yeah. Have, have they grown? Have they changed? And where are they at? Because I could really see Joseph seeing that if they haven't changed, he's just going to treat them like everybody else. But I think when he sees their heart, I mean, look in verse 24, of Genesis 42, when he sees they're, they're feeling this weight, it says that he turned himself about and he wept. And we have several instances in these chapters where Joseph just feels this emotion and he wants to fix these things. And I see this also as a message of the Savior. There are things that we break that we can't fix, but he can. And if we have the right attitude, it's going to be okay. And I think we need not carry the weight. There are things that we break that we cannot fix, but he will. And I think that's important. I think that's a great message. That's beautiful, Mike. Now, Mike's going to get into Jacob's patriarchal blessings of his sons, which I think is such a significant part of this week's Come Follow Me. But before we do that, I want to throw in something very significant to Latter-day Saints. Most of us listening to this podcast are from the tribe of Ephraim. Some of you are from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, there's probably a few from various tribes, but the vast majority of the church today is from the tribe of Ephraim, and then there's a large portion from Manasseh, both of which are Joseph's sons. So something happens in chapter 48 that is very significant. Jacob calls for Ephraim and Manasseh to come to him. Now, again, there's a very significant Joseph Smith change that I would encourage you to look up. It's the Joseph Smith translation for Genesis 48, 5 through 11. So in that, Joseph presents his sons to Jacob. These are my sons. Now, listen to what Jacob says. I'm reading from verse 5 of the JST. And now of thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, behold, they are mine. Jacob says that. They are mine. And the God of my fathers shall bless them, even as Reuben and Simeon, and they shall be blessed, for they are mine, wherefore they shall be called after my name. Meaning, Jacob adopts them into the tribes of Israel. 
Jacob is pulling Ephraim and Manasseh into the status of Simeon and Reuben and all the other brothers. Notice at the very end of verse 6, Jacob says, in the tribes, therefore they were called the tribes of Manasseh and of Ephraim. So Ephraim and Manasseh are pulled in. So we had 12 sons. Joseph is going to be replaced by his two sons. So really, instead of saying the tribe of Joseph, we now say the tribe of Ephraim or the tribe of Manasseh. Now that gives us 13. And you're all saying, wait, wait a minute. Why do we keep talking about 12 if there's 13? When they inherit the land, when they come out of the wilderness, out of Egypt, and they go back and possess the land, the tribe of Levi will not be given a land inheritance because they have the priesthood. They hold the offices of the priesthood and are scattered among the other tribes. So it's kind of like Levi was taken out and scattered among the others, and Ephraim and Manasseh were added in, bringing us back to 12. So when we split the kingdom and 10 are in the north and two are in the south, that's why we're back to 12. But this is significant because Ephraim and Manasseh now become tribes in Israel. But now the next unique situation is that Manasseh is the oldest. Manasseh is older than Ephraim. Ephraim is Joseph's youngest son. So he presents them to his father Jacob so that Jacob's right hand is on Manasseh and his left hand is on Ephraim, meaning the the covenant is going to go to Manasseh, the right hand. But do you remember what Jacob does? He switches hands. He puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Now, Joseph is going to try and stop that and say, not so, my father. Manasseh is my oldest. You should put your right hand on him, and Jacob will refuse. So this is chapter 48, verse 19. His father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He shall also become a people. This is Manasseh. And he shall also be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob, or Israel, recognizes that the birthright is going to end up in the tribe of Ephraim, that Ephraim will be given the primary blessing. And so today, which tribe is gathering first? It's primarily the tribe of Ephraim that is gathering to save Israel. Just like in the days of Joseph of old, the tribe of Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh are saving the house of Israel and gathering them back and feeding them. And the primary tribe, Ephraim, is assisted by Manasseh. So that's very significant to Latter-day Saints today, but now those two tribes are adopted into the tribes of Israel. I really like the JST. I think it's worth looking at, especially all those verses you talked about. I love the end of verse 8 of the Joseph translation of chapter 48, where he says, Therefore, O my son, he has blessed me in raising thee up to be a servant unto me. And then the, the phrase I really like is, in saving my house from death. And then if you skip down to verse 11, for thou shalt be a light to my people to deliver them in the days of their captivity from bondage. This idea that Joseph's descendants are saving from death is the meta narrative of the end of Genesis. We have a famine 
there's no seeds, and Joseph fixes it. That is a meta narrative for mortality. And the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints today. Yeah. And then even Joseph's name is another layer. Joseph, in the Hebrew language, it would be Yosef. It comes from this word, Yasaf, which literally means so many things. If you add the Yod to the beginning, it's like that third person, masculine, singular, imperfect prefix, which is he will do this thing. And what's the thing he's doing? He's Yasafing. Well, what does that word mean? So many things. It means to increase. It means to add. It means to join. It means to put back or to restore. And so Joseph is the embodiment of these ideas. How is he adding to Israel? How is he increasing Israel? How is he joining? And how is he restoring? And then if you think about Joseph Smith, the seer of the latter days, whenever I think about Joseph Smith and the restoration, I think about the great talk by President Gordon B. Hinckley when he invited the world. He stood as a latter-day prophet, and he's speaking to the whole world, and he says, come, take what you have, your religious traditions, and join us. Let us add to them. And I like to liken this to a piano. There are beautiful keys and beautiful things in all religion. As I study cultures, uh, both ancient and modern, I see so much truth, and I see so many things that they're doing that are beautiful, and I see President Hinckley standing as one of Joseph Smith's successors, and he says, bring what you have, and let's add to it. I see the Book of Mormon in no way trying to destroy the Bible, but it's adding to the beauty of the Bible and helping us to maybe refocus it and to look at it in a different way. And I see Joseph of Egypt doing these things. He's adding to Israel, and he's putting back broken things that were lost. And what a great image of Joseph being, once again, for Jesus. Let me give a prophecy in our modern day. The day section one was given, when they're wondering whether or not they should publish the revelations, section 133 was also given. One was intended to be the preface, and one was intended to be the appendix, but then we ended up giving 133 a number, and now it's just numbered there. But it was always intended to be the appendix of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in that appendix, it says in verse 26, "...and they who are in the north country shall come in remembrance before the Lord, and their prophets shall hear his voice." So we're going to go gather Israel." Verse 27, a highway shall be cast up in the midst of the great deep. Their enemies shall become a prey unto them. In the barren desert shall they come forth pools of living water, and they will bring forth their rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim, my servants. And the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence, and there they shall fall down. When Israel is gathered home, They shall fall down and be crowned with glory even in Zion by the hands of the servants of the Lord, even the children of Ephraim. So Ephraim now stands in that position of Joseph in saving Israel and bringing them food to eat and life in a desert. And when they gather, they will fall down and thank the people who brought them home, meaning the children of Ephraim. Yeah, I think that's really good. Okay, so now I want to get into some of the passages that maybe in your personal study you might come across and be wondering about. These are not necessarily always going to be the high points that you would share in a lesson, but if you're someone who's reading this and you're looking at some of these things and you're asking questions like, why is this in here? I think some of these things might be useful to you as you go through the text. So 
Let's go to the 46th chapter of Genesis. And to kind of get our bearings as far as the story, in the 45th chapter, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. And the end of chapter 45 is this beautiful statement when the brothers come back and they tell Jacob, guess what? Joseph is alive and he's governor over all the house of Egypt. And then in verse 26, it says, Jacob's heart fainted for he believed them not. But then we get to the last verse where he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. He sees the wagons that Joseph sent to bring him down. Clearly, they've got to be telling the truth. There's no way Pharaoh would have sent wagons if Joseph really weren't alive. So he believes them. And then he said, that's a beautiful phrase. It is enough. It's beautiful. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. Such a beautiful And I wonder if during the dark days of the apostasy, I wonder if what consoled God is that Joseph's still alive. Joseph is still alive and is yet going to save Israel. I think that spirit breathes today in the Latter-day Saints, in the traditions that we hold in our faith. So chapter 46, verse 1, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto God. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am, or Hineni, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. And so... I really want to emphasize this, that Jacob, even though he heard the story that his son was alive, he went and spoke to God. He counseled with God. And I I can imagine this being a difficult decision. Am I going to go into this land that I know not? And the Lord says, you know, you should go. You should go do this. And I'm going to pull you out. And then there's this enigmatic phrase in verse 4, Joseph shall surely put his hand upon thine eyes. Literally translated, Joseph shall place or set his hand on your eyes. This is an idiom in Hebrew, and it's understood as a reference to the custom that the eldest son or the nearest relative would gently close the eyes of the deceased. And such has remained, according to Nahum Sarna, such has remained a time-honored Jewish practice even to this present day. And the promise was fulfilled as told in Genesis 49 and Genesis 50. And so, it's poetic and it's beautiful that Jacob is going to see him before he dies. And then he has a vision at the place where the patriarchs had had visions as well. Now, in the 46th chapter, there's this embrace. If you go to verse 28, it says, he sent Judah before him unto Joseph. So they're coming into Egypt, the family, Jacob's coming, and he sends Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came near to the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot. And he went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. That image, to me, is also right there in Moses 7, this tradition of the great reunion. Now, Several episodes ago, when we were starting Genesis, we talked about the Egyptian roots of Genesis. I mean, Joseph is coming out of Egypt, and Moses, that's where he got his training. Moses was raised in the court of Egypt. 
Like he was connected to nobility. Surely he was associated with the scribes as a noble. He probably had great access to scribal schooling and training and the ways that they viewed the cosmos and the gods. My contention is, is that in roughly 1900 BC, that there really was a character named Abraham. Now we, we base this on faith, that there was a, a patriarch named Abraham. We do know that the Egyptians had a dynasty. And we do know that right around 1650, we have these texts that scholars are calling the Book of the Dead, which isn't a book, but it's a collection of of sayings and, and incantations to help the dead to cross over successfully into the next life, into the realm of the gods. And Joseph Smith is looking at this stuff. I mean, we get Abraham in the Kirtland period, and these ideas are distilling in his mind. And he sees a connection between the order of the patriarchs and what the Egyptians are doing. So if you go to Abraham chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate the order established by the fathers in their first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam, and also Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. Now Pharaoh, being of that lineage by which he could not have the right of the priesthood, notwithstanding the Pharaohs, would fain claim it from Noah through Ham. Therefore my father was led away by their idolatry. And then we get into Abraham explaining the stars and the cosmic order of things. And so we've put in the show notes a document where you can see some connections between Genesis and these texts that scholars call the Book of the Dead. And you can see for yourself some of these connections. We see messages of conquering enemies and becoming free, and this is in connection with receiving a name and pronouncing a name. How many times in Genesis do we have individuals confronted with beings from another world in the context of a confrontation and then receiving a name? And we see this in the Book of the Dead. We see in the Book of the Dead redundancies. Scholars have noted that the Book of the Dead is embedded with multiple redundancies. As we've closed out Genesis, I mean, this is our last Genesis podcast, how many times have we come across places where we mention, okay, this is the second time we've told the story. This is the third time we've told this story. Here's another redundancy. And in the Book of the Dead text, they would actually take the dead individual and they would wrap the individual in the text. They would take these spells and put them on the dead individual and wrap them in them. And then they would also put them on the sarcophagus. And so one scholar said, these successive wrappings are not unlike the embedded redundancy of a magical cocoon that ensured that if one copy of these promises was damaged, the intent of the message would continue. In other words, they did it over and over again to make sure that the message was told. And as I study Genesis, I see so many times, even sometimes from the same source, a redundancy. Now, over and over again in these texts, there's this message of an embrace. And I just want to read this from the Book of Mormon. Look in 2 Nephi 1 verse 15. The Lord has redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I think Nephi knew these things. Nephi's name is an Egyptian name, and Egypt is in Nephi's mind. So another verse from the Book of Mormon, Alma 533. 
Behold, he sends an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. So the image of Jesus with his arms extended, anticipating an embrace. This is a big part of the Book of the Dead. This is the embrace when the son Horus is received into the arms of his father Osiris. And in Genesis, in chapter 41, Joseph gets the raiment, he gets the ring, he's arrayed in fine linen, he gets a name change. He's also married to this woman called Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And so from this, we can gather a couple things, that the act of clothing was connected to Joseph's being invested with authority. And Hugh Nibley writes, the related rites of washing, anointing, and clothing are the same for the daily temple cult for the dead. And it's not surprising that they're the normal business of temple worship. Now, what do we see in Latter-day temples? A lot of these things. Now, ritual clothing is a really important part of these ritual texts. Robert Rittner writes that the recitations of the Book of the Dead envelop the deceased in ritualized phrases of deification. Think about that. In Egypt, they were ritually enveloped in phrases of deification meaning to become like the gods. Rittner continues, when they are inscribed on mummy bandages and coffins, the envelopment is quite literal. They are the textual counterpart to the physical rituals of mummification intended for the same purpose. What's the purpose? To convert a deceased man into a god. And then by washing and baptizing them and enclosing streams of blessed water, they apply protective amulets. In other words, the dead are to be clothed, to be deified. Uh, There's a lot more. There's a lot happening in Genesis. I see it connected to Egypt. And the paper that we're going to put in the show notes is just a jumping off point. It's just a beginning. It's not extensive. It's just enough to kind of get you started. But I think that's an important thing for us to at least mention in this podcast, that we have all this stuff in the background behind Genesis. And so then... After this embrace in the 46th chapter, go to chapter 47, verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That's a really interesting and a little bit puzzling phrase. And that phrase can mean in the Hebrew, little and hard, or few and malignant, or small and unhappy. It could also be translated the way the King James translators translated it. I think all the patriarchs could have possibly made this statement, meaning that their journey upon this earth is not very long, neither is ours. And the lives that they lived were filled with difficulty. But I would add that Jacob's story was especially hard, considering his birth and the challenge with the birthright, and then his brother wants to kill him, and then he has the struggle with Laban. And then the plural wives, the enmity that that caused within his household, and then the tragic circumstances surrounding his loss of Joseph. And so I think Jacob can say that. In my opinion, he really was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Jacob knew loss, and he knew what it was like to live in this world of of chaos and sin. It's been difficult. It's been a challenge. And there's even the footnote there, footnote 9b, where it says unpleasant, that it's been a challenge for him. Not not just unpleasant, but very difficult. You know, when I think about that, Mike, it reminds me of Paul. Paul certainly could say he had some tough days. Remember where Paul says, of the Jews, five times I received 
40 stripes save one. And he talks about perils in sea. I mean, Paul certainly had a tough life. And yet Paul was able to say in light of all of that, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So I'm just positive that Jacob had those moments that, yes, my life has been a challenge, but I have hope. I have hope for the future and that God is kind and generous. And I just, I keep, as we describe, you know, that phrase, I keep thinking of Paul who could have said just as much as Jacob that I've had a tough life and yet, boy, the glories of God that are going to be mine don't even compare to the challenges that I faced. I like that reference in First Corinthians too. I think that's a good summation of what it means to live on earth and to try to live the gospel. It's difficult. It's a challenge. But I think we can look back and we can, we can see the Lord's hand in our life as you so beautifully illustrated earlier on. So next, I want to talk about a challenging section in chapter 48. Bryce, you really broke down the blessing really well, but there's this really strange thing happening that he takes him, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, that's in the very first verse. And one told Jacob and said, behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee and Israel strengthened himself and sat upon his bed. And then he gives him the blessings of El Shaddai, the blessings of God almighty to be fruitful and multiply. And then in verse 5, it says, And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which are born unto thee. And, and then he talks about how, you know, they're as Reuben, they're mine, they're, they're as Simeon, they're mine. And then he talks about their issue. And then we get to this strange verse, and it's verse 8. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons, and he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. I mean, if you're reading the chapter, you read the first seven verses, and he's talking to them, and he's giving them a blessing. And then you read verse 8, and then he says, Israel says, who are these? Now, option one is Israel or Jacob has Alzheimer's, and he has forgotten who they are. I don't think that's what's going on in the text. And so, once again, in the Bible, when we look at it logically, there's a problem with verse 8. And the answer, at least according to the scholars, is it's another source. So, Verses 3 through 7 in chapter 48 come from P. And once again, P, or the priestly author, talks a lot about El Shaddai. Remember, the priestly author contends that God's name is El Shaddai, and he's not revealed unto Israel as Yahweh, or the Lord, or Jehovah, until Moses. And so throughout Genesis, whenever P is talking, that's God's name. But in J, the southern author, the Yahwist, his name is Jehovah. That's kind of how they settle this. And so what's happening in verse 8? Well, in verse 8, it's a different author. Who is it? It's the northern author. And so these verses introduce their perspective of Joseph's sons. Now, it's the same stuff, but it's another tradition stitched in by an editor. So Joseph says in verse 9, these are my sons whom God has given me, which we've just talked about in the first few verses. And then verse 10 says, the eyes of Israel were dim for age so that he could not see. And then he brought them near. And once again, we have the embrace and the kissing. Now I will say verse 10 does give you a way out. If you're a literalist, you could say, well, because he can't see, he had to ask the question again. So I'm open to that as well. What if one author wrote this? I like this either way, but the main point here is that he's giving them the blessing, which I think, Bryce, you illustrated so well in the JST. Now, this is going to then shift into what's called the Testament of Jacob. 
And the 49th chapter of Genesis is rich and deep and could be its own podcast. These are his last words to his sons, and every single one of the tribes gets a patriarchal blessing. I will say the first three get a blessing, which is not necessarily so good. I mean, I would not want these blessings, but I think it also is trying to lay out a pecking order or an order of who is to be the birthright son. You see, we've talked about earlier how Reuben is told that he's, quote, unstable as water and that he went into his father's bed and defilest it. And then we get into Simeon Levi in verse 5, and they're the brethren, if you remember, they were the ones that executed violence when their sister Dinah was violated. And it says in verse 6, in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Now, those of you who are descendants of any of these tribes, and you read a negative patriarchal blessing here, I would just say to you, don't be discouraged. In the latter days, I would suggest that every tribe will have an honor and a glory associated with it that we will see. I think this is just set in this time and stage to say, look— This is why Joseph is going to be the birthright. This is why Ephraim is going to carry over. So understand that he's not trying to give the full report of all of these tribes. I also think it's important to see that this is ninth century understanding of tribal designations, both politically and geographically. And some of these tribes are bigger than others. Judah and Joseph are the big ones that rule north and south. North Israel, Southern Judah. And so reading it this way, if we read it in our modern lenses, we might miss everything you're saying, Bryce. So I'm with you. Whatever the tribe, we are all Israel. And Israel has all the blessings of Isaac and Abraham and Adam and Eve. But the two big blessings are going to be given to Joseph. That's in verse 22 through 26. And Judah. Judah's in verse 8 through 12. And Judah and his blessings are connected to kingship. He has this scepter and this staff. Look what it says in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is connected to the idea that in Judah, the kingdom in the south, the kings come from the descendants of Judah. Now, the first king of the United Tribes is Saul, and he's not from Judah. Saul is from Benjamin. But from David onward, we go with the descendants of Judah. And so I think that's kind of why these things are going on in those verses 8 through 12. There's a ton of more stuff in the show notes if you want to get into the weeds as far as what's going on with his eyes being red like wine and his teeth white with milk. Go into the show notes and get into that. I want to talk a little bit about Joseph. Joseph is a bane parat. He's a fruitful bow. Uh, bane is son of. So son of increase or son of fruitfulness is probably a better way to read it literally. But I like the King James where they just went fruitful bow because it's this idea that he's just spreading forth increase. And the image that I see here is a tree. His branches, verse 22, run over the wall. And we put a lot of things in the slides as well as in the show notes to describe how modern interpreters, people like Orson Pratt, read this. And they see it as Joseph's branches go over the ocean and his descendants go into the Americas. From the perspective of the authors of Genesis 49 and from the perspective of the people that lived in the ninth century in Israel— Joseph was going to be the head of Ephraim. Ephraim is going to be synonymous with Israel. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah split in 921 BC, and they have a couple hundred years of enmity. And the head in the north was Joseph's descendants, and the head in the south were Judah, David's. And so that's one way to read these blessings. Now, the translation, in my opinion, isn't perfect. 
And so I really want to emphasize that there's much uncertainty in this text as far as meaning. There's a lot of elusiveness and a lot of wordplay happening in here. And many scholars call chapter 49 the most difficult segment of the entire book of Genesis. The Greek rendering of this chapter also bears some really distinct differences. And so some of the blessings are very ambiguous and It can be a little bit tricky. We put a lot of this stuff in the show notes if you want to read it. I do want to talk a little bit about a couple of the tribes briefly. And so let's talk about Asher really quick. If you go to chapter 49, verse 20, it says, Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Uh, Robert Alter gives this translation. Asher's bread shall be rich, and he shall bring forth kingly dishes. When it comes to the bread being fat, it's described as shamanah, and that's where we get the word shaman, the word for oil or fat. In fact, the word Gethsemane comes from that. God's shaman is the oil press. And so the image I want to put in your mind is this bread that's kingly bread. It's the food of kings or the food of heaven, bread and oil. I see these as temple images. Another one I want to look at briefly is Naphtali. And Naphtali can be kind of enigmatic because if you look in verse 21, it's a short verse and it says, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Now, what does that mean? A hind is a female deer. And the word used for female deer, if you remove those vowel points, because you remember when this text was written, there weren't vowel points. The vowel points were put in by the Masoretes from about the 5th to the 10th century AD. The Masoretes put these vowel points in. And so the text as it reads is unpointed if you read it from the perspective of the people that lived at the time that was written and in Jesus's day. So the that word that can be translated as female deer or hind can also be read as a tree. And that's the way the Greeks translated it. In the third century BC, when the Hebrew speaking and Greek reading Hebrews translated their scriptures into Greek, they translated that from that word for hind into stechelos. And that is the word for a tree or a trunk. And so the translation from the Greek is as follows. And Naphtali is a stechelos, a tree trunk, having released, giving over in his offspring beauty. Another way to translate this, from the Greek at least, is that we have this idea of beauty and goodly words coming out of a tree. And that fits right in the first Israelite tradition of the first Israelite temple of a tree in the Holy of Holies, in the place of speaking, giving goodly words. And so I, I like reading it that way. I think it fits. I think at least as the third century BC Hebrew speakers that could read Greek as they translated it, that's how they saw it. And I think that's a beautiful image. So if you want to know more about these, the blessings of these patriarchs, go into the show notes and you can look and see some of the different ways it can be read. Just know that there's a lot of flexibility here, but I think the two main blessings here are going to be the ones to Judah and the ones to Joseph. But if you're from one of these other tribes, don't worry. It doesn't mean you're not important, but I think it certainly means that at the time these things were written down, those two tribes had preeminence. And right now, the only tribe whose assignment has been revealed in the latter days is really Joseph. Joseph's tribe is to gather Israel. But I testify, I, I am confident that someday the Lord will reveal some great purpose for each and every one of the tribes, and that there's going to be glory and honor. 
Thank you, Mark. I just love those insights and the blessings of Jacob. I'd like to go to chapter 50 because chapter 50 is phenomenal for Latter-day Saints, but you have to read the JST. You're not going to get much out of chapter 50 alone if you don't open up the JST and maybe even open up 2 Nephi chapter 3. So after Joseph prepares for his death, in the Bible, it just simply says, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. But there is a tremendous addition where Joseph reveals a vision that God has given him. Joseph was told very clearly that his people would fall into bondage, that the Egyptians would enslave his people. But he was told that a prophet would come and save them. He was even told the name. So in verse 24 of the JST for Genesis 50, he says, look, there's a prophet coming, and this prophet shall deliver my people out of Egypt. In verse 29, he names him. His name shall be Moses. So when Moses shows up, it wasn't a surprise to the Israelites if they were familiar with Joseph's prophecy. Joseph clearly said that the prophet Moses would deliver them and that Moses would be nursed by the king's daughter. And then in verse 34 and 35, he was told, I will raise up Moses and a rod shall be in his hand. He will gather my people, lead them as a flock, smite the waters of the Red Sea with his rod. He will have judgment and he will write the word of the Lord. He won't speak many because Aaron will be his servant. So great details are coming through Joseph, which must have given him great comfort because he's the one that pulled his brethren down into Egypt. He could have said, you stay in Canaan, and he pulled them down to Egypt, and it must have given him great comfort to know that, yes, they're going to be enslaved, but the Lord's going to free them by the hand of Moses. And then Joseph was told about another great leader, a descendant of his, who, as he says in verse 26, would be a great seer. In fact, in verse 27, he calls him a choice seer. Who's he talking about? Well, we can jump all the way to verse 33. His name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father, meaning it's Joseph Jr. Joseph of Egypt was told about Joseph Smith and what Joseph would do. He was, the Lord was very clear that he would work a work for the fruit of thy loins, he would bring them much knowledge of the covenants. And then he says in verse 30, a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loin, and I will give him power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. So Joseph, the great seer of the latter days, was to bring forth the word of the Lord and give it to Joseph's seed. And not just that, but the convincing them of the word that has already gone for. So Joseph was given great power in establishing the truths of the Bible as well. Verse 31, the angel tells Joseph, the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. And that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, Joseph, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, the laying down of contentions, the establishing of peace, the bringing of us to a knowledge of our fathers in the latter days, and the knowledge of the covenants. That's a beautiful list of what the Bible and the Book of Mormon coming together will do.
I'm going to read it again. I really think this should be read. If you're teaching a gospel doctrine lesson, I think this is important stuff. Yes, that Joseph of Egypt was told that his brother's loins would write, that's the Bible, and that his loins would write, that's the Book of Mormon, and that they shall grow together unto, here we go, the Bible and the Book of Mormon coming together, confound false doctrine. Number two, lay down contentions. Number three, establish peace. Number four, those two together bring us to the knowledge of our fathers. And like Mike and I have been saying in our podcast, help us understand our responsibility in the latter days because of covenants made in the past, which leads us to number five, the two of them coming together, bring us to a knowledge of the covenants. That's a beautiful list, and we really ought to emphasize it a lot in our teachings, that the Bible and the Book of Mormon were destined to come together, and that Joseph was a key instrument in doing that. I love verse 32, that Joseph would be made strong out of weakness. In section 24, Joseph will be told, in temporal things thou shalt not have strength. He wasn't a very good writer, but he was made strong because of the Lord. I love that Joseph was seen in such glory. I love that Joseph of Egypt took comfort in knowing that there would be a Joseph Smith. About six months before Joseph Smith's martyrdom, his father, an ordained patriarch, gave him his patriarchal blessing. Joseph Smith received a patriarchal blessing. It will be available soon in upcoming editions of Joseph Smith papers. It's from December 9th of 1834. His father laid his hands upon him and said, I'm just going to read a portion of his blessing. Quote, I bless thee with the blessings of thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even the blessings of thy father, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Behold, he looked after his posterity in the last days when they should be scattered and driven by the Gentiles and wept before the Lord. He sought diligently to know from whence the son should come who should bring forth the word of the Lord by which they might be enlightened and brought back to the true fold. And his eyes beheld thee, my son, His heart rejoiced, and his soul was satisfied. Now, I'm going to extend that a little bit. I believe Joseph of Egypt saw not just Joseph Smith individually, but all of us in the latter days who are his descendants. I am honored to declare that I am a direct blood descendant of Joseph through Ephraim. And so I hear me in this. I hear all of us. I hear the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe that Joseph of Egypt looked through time, saw the apostasy, saw the struggles of so many of his descendants, and wondered who, who would save them. And he saw each and every one of us. And he saw our efforts to go on missions He saw us going to Mexico and to Canada and to Europe and to Asia and to Africa and every continent on earth, and he saw us searching out for not only his descendants, but all of Jacob's descendants, all of Heavenly Father's descendants, and he saw us bringing them home. 
He saw us holding the Book of Mormon that Joseph gave us and teaching them of the truths that will save them. And I think Joseph's soul was satisfied, not just because of Joseph Smith, but because of all of us. Joseph knew that his seed was going to be taken care of. Someday we will meet him, and we will honor him for who he was. And I believe with all my heart he will turn to us and fall upon our necks and kiss us and thank us for rising up and saving his family and all of God's children and bringing them home. And with that, we end not only this podcast, but we end section two of our Old Testament study, which is the Abraham piece. We have been looking at the covenant within a family. That's now going to shift. When we come back, we will no longer be a family. We will be a nation. We will be multiple tribes, and we're going to watch the covenant in bondage. So join us next week as we begin to study the book of Exodus. The way out. Echodos, the road out. We'll do that. Exodus chapters 1 through 6. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.